0: Welcome to Brave Dynamics. This is your host, Jeremy Au. Leadership is harder than it looks. As a proven founder and Harvard MBA, I interview courageous entrepreneurs, executives, and investors every week. I also share my frontline experiences, coaching insights, and own professional development journey. If you're stepping up as a new leader, founding a startup, or venturing into the great unknown, this Is the podcast for you?
1: Jamie Ng is the founder and CEO of Matchcast, Asia's first audio podcast advertising and analytics platform for brands. Founded in 2019, Matchcast is funded by Entrepreneur First, a global talent investor supporting the world's most ambitious individuals. EF is backed by some of the world's best investors, including the founders of LinkedIn, DeepMind, and PayPal. Matchcast makes audio podcast discovery, analytics, and advertising simple for brands. It helps brands and podcasters take the pain out of finding the right podcast to create campaigns that resonate with audiences. As of 2020, Matchcast has 1.6 million podcast titles under its database. Before Matchcast, Jamie was a technical and data-driven Chief Marketing Officer, or CMO, with over 18 years of experience working in the U.S., the U.K., and Southeast Asia. She has built MarTech and AdTech platforms for top companies, including MediaCorp and TripAdvisor. Most recently, she led both marketing, product, and technical teams as the CMO in RedMart and NTUC-Link. Jamie graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Economics from the National University of Singapore. Aside from her full-time career, she also angel invests and writes on a blog. You can find her on her LinkedIn at www.linkedin.com backslash I N backslash Jamie Ng. Great to
0: have you on board, Jamie.
2: Hey, thanks for having me, Jeremy.
0: It's really interesting to have another podcast expert, but also a digital transformation and marketing guru here on the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me. I mean, you're pretty much more of the podcast expert. I've only been doing podcasts for what one and a half years.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I started out in the uh, pandemic as well, so I got to say I'm a more junior podcaster than you in this respect. That being said, you know we both had long experience in the technology industry, right? Which is what we're both experts in. I think it's interesting to talk about that. So let's just get started with hearing your journey in your own words. You know, how did you first get started in tech?
2: Great question. So it really goes back to, I would guess, the first internet. I actually got exposed to probably the internet when it was, what, 1995? (laughs) Very young for a lot of probably listeners now. But that was called the World Wide Web then. And I actually was doing computing in NUS, but it was C++. And then I kind of majored in economics. But I really got interested in this whole World Wide Web thing. And I really basically, I think, started HTML within a day. That got me really hooked. NUS basically gave us a free modem and we kind of connected to the internet. So I, I would say I was very lucky. I was part of the first wave. And then after NUS, I kind of went into a different route. Even though I graduated in economics, I was really interested in media. So I actually became a producer and was sort of doing production for a while, um, decided to do film production in the US. And that's why I went to the US and did a sort of a diploma in film direction. Obviously, I didn't become a film director, but that led me down the other path. I was always thinking that I could have two paths, either the one being that if I'm successful in media, I'll become a director or doing some commercial or MTV. But you know, on the other hand, I was very tech savvy at that time. I felt that that was really booming. And when I was in the US, I saw the boom. So immediately right after my graduation, I tried to work in production. That didn't really lead to anywhere. But thankfully, I found a company called TripAdvisor, which was starting out at that time. Then obviously, that was one of the early startups that was based out of US and very close to proximity to where I was based and started working in marketing there. And it just became a lifestyle. Back and forth, I've been traversing between the U.S. and Singapore. After TripAdvisor, I've come back to Singapore a couple of times to work in Mediacorp, and then went back to the U.S. to work in you know, MySpace, and then coming back to Singapore again, working for companies like Redmark and then you know NTUC Link. So long story short, just crossing continent, learning from both places. I've been based in Southeast Asia for quite some time now, I forgot how many years, but really excited by what's happening here in Singapore.
0: Amazing. And Feel yeah, like you're selling yourself short, right? Because you were an early employee of Tripadvisor, which we all know about. Everyone in the world. I was in uh, in the middle of Turkey, and you know, all the restaurants had Tripadvisor stickers on the front, right? You know, I go up to the middle of the forest you know, in some places, and I see Tripadvisor. And then you know, you were at MySpace, right? And then <laughs> leading the you know marketing programming, and then after that, you were at Redmond again, another fast growth and now like market leader in the grocery space in Southeast Asia. So you definitely have done that stack of work, honestly.
2: Yeah, interesting. I mean, obviously TripAdvisor wasn't the big giant that you you thought it was now. I mean, think of that time. So I was in a very interesting space. You know, I made my, I would say, early fortunes. <laughs> you might have heard of a company called Joe Cities. I was actually an early investor in that company. It was bought over by Yahoo!, for like $19 billion. And that was a time where it was the first wave of internet. You probably have never thought of that. But yeah, it was interesting. I, I mean, I saw literally the growth, the rise of many tech companies and the fall of many tech companies. In 2000, there was even a company called Fetch that was very popular in New York. Basically, it died because at that time, the infrastructure wasn't right for it. But it was reincarnated in the form of Deliveroo, Panda, and Uber Eats. <laughs> So you could see that, you know, sometimes certain technology has its own trends and, you know, timing is actually of the essence really when you look at the whole landscape. So very interesting, I would say, of a career path. Um, really enjoyed doing this sort of work around Southeast Asia as well as
0: the US. For so many people, they must be wondering to themselves, you know, how do you pick them, right? <laughs> you know, because you've been able to pick good companies to join, good companies to invest in. I mean, I still remember setting up my own Geocities page some time ago. So how did you go about, was it because of luck or is it because you felt that there was a good feeling about it? Any signals?
2: Yeah, I think it's both. I would say luck play a, a really big part of the early sort of investment. I was exactly like you. I was big, uh, a big fan of Geocities. And remember, I wasn't really a tech person. I was an economist. I was in the arts and the science. And when I got into tech, everything interests me. So I created really, uh, probably at that time, the HTML website that was very, very popular. And that got me interested into Joe City's. Uh, Joe Cities reach out and I kind of went and started working with them as a moderator. And then from there, actually, I saw the opportunity of it growing. I didn't expect it to become something what it was. But after it IPO, it, I think within months, it was bought over by Yahoo. And Yahoo at that time was literally Google of today, Google plus Facebook. So I think luck had a lot of to take with it. Then subsequently, obviously, you know, with the gut sense, I think sometimes if you're passionate in the industry, you do have a bias. But at the same time, I think it gives you a lot of exposure into the industry that maybe perhaps other people might not have. So for example, if you were very early on in tech, you kind of learn to spot the trends, the, you know, the potentials, the possibility. But obviously, in the early days, you didn't have as much data point to look at. I think now evaluating even companies startups you have a lot more data point to look at you look at trends you look at variety of everything from cac to even like how fast it is growing is the industry a competitor landscape so on and so forth which i think in the past when you know you were kind of early days pioneer you didn't really have any of that to bank on so yeah luck and i think just a very strong gut sense um is probably what uh, i relied on most
0: What was it like in your first days joining TripAdvisor? What was it like your first day, your first week stepping into the office?
2: It was cold. (laughs) I remember it was out in Boston, Newton. So it was cold. That was what I remember. It was very unstructured, but you kind of expected it. Because I remember before joining TripAdvisor, I was doing film. But film, interestingly, had a very good sense of structure around production. So everything is very meticulous. Filmmaking in US is extremely meticulous and you know extremely process driven. So then I went to the startup and then everything was a bit chaos. I remember taking up the train up and then having someone meet me, driving to the office because I, I didn't drive when I was there. And then I pretty much spent the whole week trying to figure out talking to different people, understanding the processes, understanding what's happening. And then basically ran outside of my JD, kind of started getting involved in projects, which I think is interesting. I remember those were the early days. So web was really new. Not many people had really a background in the web, but I was already creating websites. So I was kind of roped into the web team. And then on the other hand, I didn't have that much experience with marketing But there was already discussions with some of the hotel chains that was coming up. I got myself plopped into those discussions. I think it was just really kind of me putting myself out there with the team and then getting involved in projects that I think would be interesting. I didn't think of it from a portfolio building standpoint. I really thought of it as, hey, you know, that's interesting. That's something I haven't done before. I would really be interested to do that. And I think my experience previously, I mean, obviously media helped a lot. In essence, marketing and media at that time is synonymous, goes hand in hand. So that helped a lot. Uh, That kind of opened doors for me to kind of be sort of valued members in those teams. So that's really how I survived my first week and then continued there for two years.
0: What's interesting is that You've also been able to not just work as a marketing leader in these now brand name companies and startups, but you've also worked in like a TikTok fashion on a tick being the US side, but also work on a talk, which is the Singapore-based legacy players or incumbents, right?
2: Yep, absolutely.
0: So tell me more about that. How does leadership differ in these two different types of companies?
2: Yeah, interesting. I mean, they're very, very different. If you look at Legacy business and startups, I would say almost night and day. The big difference was this: I think you know, in the traditional business, I didn't go in as a traditional corporate leader. I went in sort of trying to be a catalyst to make changes. Looking back at my media corp days, I was actually there, actually driving the very first uh, sort of streaming platform. I don't know if you remember, there was a service that media corp released called Mob TV. It was actually the, I would say, grandmother, grandfather of the Toggle.sg that you remember today. It was actually the first streaming platform in Singapore. It was basically the first to be able to download, pay a subscription, be able to download videos. But remember, those were the days that we had the 56k modem. So it literally takes you about an hour to download an hour of serial of an episode and you could put it into your machine. And at that time, you didn't have iPad or iPhones. I remember the very first commercial that went out was uh, Zoe Tay and Taping Binghui, you know. Somebody was just watching them acting on a show, and then you realize uh, they were watching it on a creative machine. So that was the kind of background of that. I didn't go into Mediacorp to become another marketer. I actually went in to start up this division for them, which they have no idea how to do. Combining my background as a media person as well as uh, my experience in, in the internet, Similarly, I went to, obviously, NTUC-Link, which is my last role to be a catalyst after having my in red mark to really help them look at ways that they could transform their business, going from a loyalty reward program to a more, I would say, all-encompassing, almost in some way similar to the work that I did in LiftUp, but to build sort of a lifestyle-driven LiftUp program in, in NTUC-Link. But the challenges is this that I've realized in my corporate legacies thing is that the challenges of it being similar is the financial side of things. And I would say the real commitment to change. So in startups, you have that where if you're actually running a different trajectory to what you have actually spoken to, to with your investors or board, you actually face certain resistance. In legacy companies, that actually is the same. That is probably the most similar So you will want to, say, build a service that may be loss-making, and you hope that that investment pays off. But then there's always a time, a runway that you can actually continue to invest in. And legacy business sometimes, because they're, I would say, less risk-prone, gets into that problem whereby they're not sure they will continue. And then that's when project kind of falls apart commitment falls through and they no longer have the desire to make the changes that they originally wanted and those were actually a lot of the failures that i've seen in the legacy company and similarly in you know in startups i would say it almost mirrors the same thing look at my space we were at the top of i would say the peak we were the equivalent of google and facebook we could have bought both of them and became this giant but instead what stalled was investment committee the board not going and buying up these companies resistance to perhaps investment and then at the same time being sold to a more traditional company that didn't understand you and they're having to deal with the board in a very different way so in some essence they are the same they face the same fate if they're not careful but essentially two very different kind of businesses in legacy business you end up dealing a lot with i would say your traditional counterpart helping them to understand you a lot more, while else in startup, you actually have to innovate fast enough to show enough confidence to your board that you can move into certain riskier tangent and not face the fate of becoming sort of obsolete in the market.
0: That's so true. You know, I think it's a classic analysis of how corporates, both, you know, large and small, whether you were a startup one year ago or you were a startup, you know, 20 years ago, at the end of the day, it just boils down to people and committees and human culture, right? Absolutely. The decision-making stalls, you know, it's difficult to incubate innovation within a company regardless, right? Absolutely. And I think one interesting thing is that, of course, you know, now we've seen that birth of, you know, as a result of that culture where large companies are now much more willing to acquire companies, to acquire new geographies, new startups, because I think there's a growing realization that, you know, they're not able to, at some size, properly incubate or create a teaming and buy necessary to actually launch something of their own, right? What do you think about that? Is that like a sweet spot for timing for the right acquisition? to get to the next level of innovation.
2: You're absolutely right. I'm very much pro Acquire, I think, if it's done properly. And companies that actually acquire startups, so you can't just buy and then wants to integrate without having a lot of changes. Classic case, you know, MySpace got bought up by News Corp. That was the actually the first sign of downfall because trajectory start changing, News Corp starting to inject certain elements to it, started to inject its own purview to this tech startup, which it didn't quite understand. But it bought the startup, which is MySpace at that time, for that same purpose because it didn't understand tech. But instead of really learning from the tech side of the business, it actually kind of went the other way. That learning was probably one of the biggest corporate failure, I would think. The second thing, obviously, if you look at Singapore, companies like Singtel have been acquiring a lot of different companies. But, you know, if you look at recent reports, it hasn't been very successful in integrating a lot of these startups into its business. So I'm actually pro acquire hire when I actually see uh, a really strong, you know, innovative company acquiring a young startup and integrate it within its services. That makes the service even stronger. So obviously, case in point, Facebook acquisition of Instagram, and then its acquisition of WhatsApp completes the ecosystem in such a way that it's in your everyday life. And then Google acquisition of ways into its Google Map and using that uh, to really empower its Google Map. So if you look at acquisitions, what's done differently in these two companies is how well you actually integrate the business. Well, acquire. I think it's an amazing way to really bootstrap or rather kickstart your legacy business. You really need to take that step, especially, I guess this is my experience and I want to share with traditional company or legacy companies. And if you intend to go and acquire a startup, bringing that into your fold and then making it look like everywhere else and every department that you have in your company is not going to work the right way to look at it is either you continue to let it run separately but conscientiously look at your business how it can integrate or really use that company to really be the catalyst of change within your organization companies that have started really doing that quite well that i can see you know obviously dbs investment into hackathons and equihire kind of program actually really helps its uh, innovation process but most recently i think stanchart you know it's uh, desire to go into a more A different type of banking with SE Ventures seems interesting. I think legacy companies are learning, but the right mix of control over innovating together is kind of the balance is still something that they're looking at.
0: Yeah, I think that's so true and perfectly encapsulates the reality, right? Which is that acquirers have to resource and keep the independence of the acquisition, right? Because if you're making that bet to hire the whole team (laughs) and take on that price, you're also taking on their vision of the future, right? Which is something that is a difficult conversation to have. And I think I've seen so many of my peers who have been acquired struggle to have that conversation, right? Which is like, we're not saying that this current business isn't profitable. We're not saying that, we're just saying that there's a future we're trying to build. (laughs) Otherwise, why did you acquire us?
2: So true in that. I mean, it should be a shared common vision of the future, not one going one direction while kind of leaving the other in the lurch and then going the other direction. I think it's combining together and forming that joint vision of the future together.
0: So, you know, with your eye and ability to you know, spot great companies in advance to either join or invest, you've also recently, over the past one and a half years, been building out this Asia first platform for podcasting and advertising. So why did you pick this problem?
2: Yeah, great question. Because it's a hard problem to solve, I think. And I've been doing it for 18 months. It's still a very, very tough problem to solve. So audio advertising really is kind of stuck in the 80s. When I first looked into it, it really started when I was at EF, you know, and I wanted to come up with an idea that kind of is something that I want to work on for the next couple of years and really grow it. And at that time, you know, obviously with my domain expertise and, and EFs kind of focus on, you know, domain expertise, looking at areas that you can make a real impact and difference. I was looking into the marketing side of things. Everything else was, you know, been there, done that, not interested. Then I stumbled onto, you know, obviously I was in Hong Kong at that time doing the EF program, and I was really inspired by Himalaya, which is Himalaya, probably one of the most dominant audio player out in China. And I was looking at it and I was looking at the West and looking at how podcast advertising is really growing. You know, since I think 2016, the uptick has been quite phenomenal. And then brands are starting to come in. There are also companies like that producing great shows, like the serial. Daily, which is Trump to be, you know, New York Times' biggest show and actually turned it around as a company. So I was looking at that, and then I realized and starting to speak with advertisers that are really early investors into podcasts. With that conversation, I realized it was really just very manual. They take weeks to basically identify the right podcast for their market. And then they spend the next couple of days sending out emails to each one of these podcasters, trying to get their rate card, trying to understand whether they can actually work with them, sponsor their show, or buy a, a pre-roll or mid-roll. So this really kind of got me thinking, like, why is audio still so traditional, so manual? If that's the case, then it's almost impossible to scale. And then looking at that, I decided that, look, this is really interesting. It's almost going back to my early GeoCities, Yahoo Days, While I was kind of digging up gold. I feel like I was an early gold digger into this sort of audio industry. And I'm trying to find that right mix of company, right type of problem to solve. And I found it in Matchcast, which is basically building a platform that enables and, and scale up podcast advertising. So in essence, what Matchcast really do is we help brands identify very quickly the right podcast or the right podcast shows, that resonates with the audience and brand, and then enable them to actually build a campaign very quickly and launch that with the podcaster in mind. In essence, think of it as very much your Facebook for audio, Google AdSense for audio advertising.
0: What's been interesting is that you've also, as a result, transitioned in your role, right? From an early employee to an early executive to digital transformation executive and catalyst and now to becoming a founder and CEO. How has that role transition been for
1: you?
2: It's been interesting. I think it's very empowering. I think I've I've sort of almost built up my career to get to this point where I can sort of put all my experience and probably all my attention and resources into this one problem that I'm, I'm trying to solve. But also at the same time I think like any founders it's always a roller coaster. I mean emotionally you're on a roller coaster on a daily basis because you would then you know face problem uh, firefighting in one area or facing another problem. You would get long bouts of basically non-activity trying to really get as much attention and awareness to your startup and then versus you know suddenly you know you get lucky with a few conversations with investors as well. So yeah, it's never easy. Look I would say, in essence, that I haven't really been able to really rightly leverage, I would say, a lot of the other experience into entrepreneurship. But it has given me a lot of, I would say, shield to make it better and to kind of avoid that roller coaster. And then I think it also has given me the right experience to spot and identify problems early on or areas which I think will be and then solve that. Um, So, in essence, probably everything that I did does not directly affect the business I'm building right now has led up to this point.
0: Awesome. And what do you think has been the shift you think from yourself from a skill and day-to-day perspective? Do you find yourself doing more email? (laughs) Do you feel like it's more lonely? I'm just kind of curious because I think there's so many people who are going Uh, to be feeling about that asking themselves the same question.
2: Absolutely. It's, It's lonely. I mean, and further add on by the fact that I made the decision to be a, a remote first company. So obviously, we have teammates in Singapore, and then we have people in Vietnam, Sri Lanka, Indonesia, so basically all around Southeast Asia. No one's really working together, even though we're working on, on match tasks. We have daily stand-up, daily calls, but it's not the same as going next door to your colleague and you know solve a problem. But we did that intentionally so that we're not confined by the talents that we can recruit within the region. And then obviously the other, I think as Matchcast grow, I think it gives us a certain sense of freedom of being able to kind of work from anywhere without having any constraints. But it is lonely. I mean, you know, when I first did Matchcast in Hong Kong, I was basically in my apartment. I'm just working on it day in and day out. didn't really go anywhere. I didn't really travel. And then I had to go up to Beijing, you know, to talk with some of the folks like Himalaya, learning from the experience. And then the rest of the time, I'm also in the apartment. It's It can be lonely. It's a lonely journey. But I think it's important to have a good network of people that you rely on. So obviously, network like of entrepreneurs like yourself that I speak to. All of my other alumni, I speak to you with uh, EF. And then also, because I also angel invest, I speak to other um, startups I'm investing in of exactly the same problem. I think that that is really, really super helpful. So you don't isolate yourself in a corner and then realizing that you're the only one that has the impression that this is going to work. Uh, separately, I think it's also important to talk to either your competitors In this case, Matchcast is because of the fact that it is a podcasting advertising platform. We speak to brands on a regular basis. We speak to podcasters on a regular basis. And that actually helps us actually identify what actually is the area that they would really like to see and build our product against that. So those conversations makes you feel less lonely when you're building your product roadmap. So I think having those right conversations actually makes you feel less lonely as you keep working on it.
0: What's interesting is that as you share that about the community you're building virtually and remote first across Asia is that you're also choosing to do that with a medium you know, of podcasting, right? Which is <laughs> a way to bind people and our emotions you know, over this virtual space, right? Are there any specific podcasts that you like or admire in this Asia ecosystem?
2: Yeah, I would say not a specific podcast, but I've been observing trends, obviously, in around Southeast Asia. And you're right, podcasting is a very tribal thing. Building podcasts in Asia, you know, you add everything while podcasts, advertising, the excitement of podcasting in US is tremendous, you know, so basically very little effort to be done there. Basically, you're a podcasting company. Everyone is almost a podcast expert out there. But in Southeast Asia, you really have to go through many conversations to find the right people that are really knowledgeable about the industry. And they don't have as much experience as you would imagine perhaps someone in the podcasting industry like doing podcasts in the U.S. has. But it's a growing tribe. And the tribe itself is finding its own identity, to be honest. I think Southeast Asia podcasters are finding its own identity. They're finding their own voice. And by voice, it could be multiple languages. I mean, if you look at one of the biggest difference in Southeast Asia, it's probably the different languages that not everyone that listens to US podcasts listens to a Southeast Asian podcast ever. And then if you look at, if they listen to a Southeast Asian podcast, what Southeast Asian podcast are they listening to it in? If they're Thai, are they listening to it in Thai? Is it in Tagalog in Philippines or Indonesia? Bahasa in Indonesia? And these are growing localized tribes that we are looking to find. And that's what Matchcast Strength is, is locate, I would say, these country, these language tribes. But the, the difficulty, I think, is actually if you look at podcasting, is that it is a voice, it is an influence of your voice. And it's a social media influencer that's using audio. And traditionally, there aren't a lot of data around audio influences and looking at That makes the problem a whole lot more complex, which is why I think addressing Matchcast and building Matchcast is a really huge problem statement, but it's also an exciting because the upside of the industry is huge. And if you look at the trajectory of audio advertising around the world, it's growing tremendously. And I think it would just be time for when Southeast Asia really picked
0: up on that trend. When you look at the future of podcasting in Asia, what... Do you see those trends to be, I mean, maybe first question is like, do you see people consuming more podcasts? And then, you know, but what, what other trends do you see in the future?
2: Yeah. On the consumption, you always assume that it's a given. But actually, I think podcasts in Asia has a very weird dynamics because we really start off with listening to radio. And traditionally, if you look at markets like Indonesia, Philippines, and even Vietnam, do they actually know how to differentiate between a radio show and a podcast? It might be actually very unconscious. It might be that they were used to listening to terrestrial radio for music that they had no control over and now going to a player where they can control and create playlists and listen to it and actually choose content that they want to listen. They might not instinctively think of it as a podcast. They would just think that it is just a changing of the way they consume audio. So I think looking at it, it's in some of these markets, that's what we're seeing. It's like the change or rather the change of habits of consuming audio versus podcasts. And then podcasts become very popular because they have limited time and they want to just kind of jam themselves with information rather than just music or other forms of audio. And that's when podcasts start increasing in terms of its listenership. And that trajectory we've seen around Southeast Asia as well, but To actually define the term podcast in Southeast Asia, it's also still complex because a lot of the listener may not actually know what it means that when they are listening to, say, a show that doesn't come from terrestrial radio, but that is actually a podcast show. That said, trends-wise, I think Southeast Asia is pretty interesting. Unlike, I think, in markets like US, which tends to have certain categories, very popular, perhaps in daily news as well as in entrepreneurship and business, in Southeast Asia, actually, you see that people are crafting more like society and culture type of show, which is basically a personal journal. They are talking about things around them. They're actually sharing that with their tribe. Separately, they are also producing high-level quality content in horror, in comedy, you know, in gaming that you don't see as much as in the Western world. And the other influence, I would say, is interesting aspect is I always think that Southeast Asia is going to be a dynamic pull of the way people consume audio like they would think of it in the western world where you have spotify for audio and then you have audible for audiobooks and then you have other form of audio content like the way newspapers are starting to embed their own reader in it southeast asia is also influenced by the way himalaya does it which is super app for all audio which has basically your music your podcast your Audio content, article read on an audible on it. So they would also go that route, which is they don't differentiate between any form of audio content, but see all of them as one form of content. And that is going to be an interesting dynamic to see how that develops within Southeast Asia.
0: Yeah, I think that's a tremendous insight, right? Which is that the West kind of looks at this, like you said, by the startup and the distribution model and format. Whereas, exactly, you said for someone who's picking up for the first time, it's this audio, right? It's a radio with an ability to pick and choose for more niche content. And it all blends together. Sometimes I'm listening to music on my commute, sometimes I'm listening to fan fiction, and sometimes I'm listening to business along the way, right? And I think that's how I think most people are consuming. This last question is, as we wrap this up, what resources would you recommend for people who are considering a journey similar to yours? And there's so many ways they can look at your journey, right? From US to Singapore to US to back in Southeast Asia, from executive to founder, from early employee to catalyst transformation. How do you think about the resources that people should pick up along the way?
2: That's a great question. I think the younger generation, the millennials, are really good at making this a more deliberate, conscious effort. I think where I was growing up, we didn't really think of it that way. I was a little bit unique in that, you know, I was the odd one. I was always going against the flow. But one thing that guided me was always to keep it sort of something that I'm passionate about and that is interesting. So the real reason I got into media in my early days, because I I watch TV a lot and I'm a big fan of a lot of the movies, And I wanted to make that my career. So when I couldn't get into MassCom, which was like the first time it ever became a sort of a university degree, people were like jamming to join that. I couldn't even get in. I remember with the score I had, but I found other ways. I was studying economics, but I was doing concerts on the weekend. I was writing for the rich, which is the... um, the NUS newspaper. I was basically forming other, I would say, career decisions that were outside of what my degree would have given me. Similarly, when I was doing any type of startup, either as an employee or as an executive, I always keep my eye out for something that is interesting, that is happening out there. I wasn't sort of locked in or phased in into what I was doing. I was looking at what other people were doing. So obviously, when we were building TV, we looked at what YouTube was doing. We looked at what Netflix was doing. We looked at the next trend that's going to happen within the sort of video streaming industry. And you look for trends like that and you keep yourself excited. The best advice for anyone who's really young starting out in their career, you know, keep the attitude of learning, keep the attitude of being passionate. Find something that you're passionate in. Find something that you really expected to wake up every day because a job is really hard. You're going to be working eight hours or more, probably 10 hours, 12 hours. And sometimes even on weekends on that job, you want to be passionate about it. Second thing, you want to keep learning. You want to keep learning in such a way that you don't have to be asked to learn. you actually want to learn. You ask to learn things that people then tell you to. Go and ask someone who is doing marketing, if you have no marketing experience, how to do marketing. Offer your service up for free by doing social media posting for others. And that's the best way to learn. If you're mid-career, then the best advice I can say is, Keep yourself abreast of what's happening around either your industry or outside of your industry, complementary industry. Look at what's interesting and do the same thing. Go out. Spend maybe your weekend learning about coding. Spend your weekend learning about UX UI design. Spend your weekend even learning accounting if you think that's something that's gonna help you in future, either as a as an entrepreneur or as a founder. Spend time learning digital marketing. And you will realize that the skill sets you have sometimes outweigh the experience or the credential that you might not have. And then last but not least, if you're an executive looking to go into entrepreneurship, find an industry that you're, again, back to the same theme, passionate about wanting to solve that same problem and speak to as many people in this industry and validate your solution, validate your problem statements and figure that right mix of how you're going to first start your company and go to ask people that have experience in entrepreneurship for advice. And people right now under the COVID-19, they are actually more than willing to help you because everyone is kind of locked down and want to share the experience with others.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Amy.
2: Thank you so much for having me here. It's great speaking to you, Jeremy.